0: Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin, a visiting scholar and lecturer in law at Yale Law School and the host of this channel. Today we are talking to Steve Vines about his new book on Hong Kong, Defying the Dragon, Hong Kong and the World's Largest Dictatorship, published by Hearst just a few months ago. Defying the Dragon is the first detailed historical account in English of the 2019-2020 protest movement that led to the imposition by Beijing of a draconian national security law in June, 2020. The law effectively put an end to many freedoms that were until then guaranteed under Hong Kong's mini constitution and the so-called one country to system arrangement. Steve Vines is a distinguished journalist and the former host of Hong Kong's leading English language public affairs TV show, The Pulse, on radio television Hong Kong, the territory's public broadcaster. He's also the author of several books, including an earlier one on Hong Kong, published in 1998, a year after the handover of the territory from uh, the UK to China, somewhat presciently titled Hong Kong, China's New Colony. Steve? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Steve, before we jump into your book, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, how you grew up and started your writing career?
1: Well, I'm, I'm what people either do or don't call a recovering journalist. So I've been a journalist for most of my working life. But in fact, um, I started what part is for my career uh, um, working in in Britain for the Labour Party, which was then in office. And it cured me of wanting to be a politician for life. It was very fortunate I did it at such a young age. Otherwise I might've been affected by either political ambition or a desire to be part of the political system, working at very close proximity, which is how it worked in those days with people who were running the government and running the, as it was a Labour government, people forget they used to have those in Britain at one time. Um, and with various luminaries from um, the ruling party as it then was, it, it completely put me off having a life in politics. So I thought, well, you know, what I should do is, is actually what I'd always wanted to do, which was to become a journalist. And it's a slippery slope from being a journalist to being a a writer of some kind. I I always insist to people that being a journalist is not being a writer. It's a different occupation. It's it's a matter of collecting, um, uh, the way I see it is collecting evidence and making sense of it. Um, There are other ways of describing journalism, but that's my view. Writing, I think, is, is obviously, not only is it longer form, but it's immensely more satisfying because you're not under constant pressure to produce something which is considered to be newsworthy, of the moment and, and you know eye-catching. Of course now days when all newspapers are online, the additional pressure is to produce something which is clickbait, something which will attract big audiences because everybody's thirsty for these big numbers. So, you know, the the importance of a story is really judged by how many people you can click onto it. So I know, for example, that if I had written a story um, about a dog in distress in the Philippines, it would most certainly get many more clicks than a boring old story about who win the next presidential election in the Philippines, which I happen to think actually is quite interesting. But, you know, it just ain't the sort of thing that produces um, that sort of response when you're writing a book it's different you you you've got the time to think about the things that, that um, are happening you've got time to make sense of them and actually as a journalist you've got time to view yourself you look over i mean one of the things i don't know how other people who are journalists write books but one of the things i do is i look over the material that I've collected myself and things I've written um, and try and work out whether or not they stand up to the test of time you know whether once you look at them you can prove some of the assertions that's been made and make greater sense of them so I suppose it's very compelling to write in this long form it's not compelling economically because you know, there's a handful of people who make a living out of of writing books, but it is a a great compendium, if you like, um, effort to to, uh, working as a journalist. As it so happens in my life, um, things turned out quite not as I expected because I also went into the business world and started some companies, namely in the food sector, mainly in the food sector, And what I found about that, and this wasn't because I was ever and I planned it all out. What I found about that was that you you, you get more contact with people in more different situations and it gives you a deeper sense of what's going on in society. When you're a journalist, people always want to, whether you're going to write about what they tell you, whether you'll be identified this is obviously particularly in the case where there's a lack of human rights and talking to journalists can become a very dangerous occupation but even without that people exercise an enormous amount of caution and self-conscious ways of talking to you because they know that your business is to put their words into your words I mean that's how it works they don't describe it as such so that when you're Dealing with people in all sorts of other ways, by by running a business, either by employing people, dealing with suppliers, dealing with customers, what have you, you you get exposed to this other world, which frankly most journalists are not exposed to. I'm not saying um, it, it means that you have necessarily the deepest insights into society. It's just that you get a different dimension of experience and that ended up, as far as I was concerned, as being tremendously valuable.
0: Right, and it, it might be useful here to um, uh, states that you've been living in Hong Kong for um, over 20 years, and that you over 30, cater- in fact. Over 30 yeah. and that your catering business was in hong kong uh, and that you were um, indeed um, uh, benefiting from this extra dimension to the uh the work of a of a journalist um But um, how did you come to write this book? Um, I remember um, I was then the uh, regional director for for Amnesty International, that you were writing, you were reporting, you were, of course, um, uh, having your uh, show on RTHK. Uh, What prompted you in in writing uh, this book in the first place?
1: Um, As you were kind enough to point out at the beginning, I have written other books and the book that um, gave me the most pleasure and had most interest in writing was indeed the book called Hong Kong China New Colony, which came out a, a year after the handover of Hong Kong to Chinese rule. And I thought at that time, You know, I was done with writing books about Hong Kong and I started to write about more Pan-Asian subjects. And then of course, history overtakes your best intentions. And in this case, history overtook them by the enormous uprising that took place in Hong Kong in 2019. I mean, of a level that, you know, I've been around a bit. I've never seen before the size of the demonstrations that took place in in the latter part of 2019, the extraordinary reach of this protest movement. You know, when when I heard that people, particularly on public housing estates, which after all in Hong Kong, people don't seem to know this, um, occupy uh, house half of the population um, on in public housing estates at, at a certain time of night, people would lean out of their windows, because they're very tightly packed in rows and rows of blocks of um, apartments. People lean out of their windows and shout slogans about the protest movement. I mean, this means throughout the territory, there was this depth of engagement with the protest movement. You, you you'd need to be, in my mind, a complete moron, not affected by it, if you were living in the middle of it. And if your job was to report it and be a a paid observer, so to speak, of of the movement, you you got very heavily engaged. I'm completely unembarrassed to say that I'm not an objective reporter. I am an avid supporter of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. I'm an avid opponent of the Chinese dictatorship. So, you know, I put my cards on the table and I say, you know, I was reporting it and I was supporting it. But I hope that, as one is supposed to, I maintain sufficient distance in the reporting to make them not one-sided. But anyway, what I thought was a very clever idea towards the end of 2019 was to write an update version of the book called Hong Kong, China's New Colony, you know, A new chapter or so. So I approached various publishers and they all said to me, We don't want that, we want a new book. It wasn't that they all wanted my book, but they wanted a new book. And then finally I came, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) across a publisher who said, Oh, you know, can you produce a book in two months? We want a really quick turnaround, a short book. And I thought about this. And I I said, yes, because that's what journalists do. You write a good book. And then I thought, you know what? That's just glorified journalism, really. I want to write something with a greater degree of research, a a bigger um, sheet, you know, really write something new. And at that point, that particular publisher became disinterested. I started writing the book and I thought, well, I still need to bring it out quickly because remember in 2019, we all thought the protest movement would be short and sharp. It would either be crushed bloodily, and at the end of 2019, people seriously believed that the People's Liberation Army would be sending tanks across the border <coughs> to crush the protest movement. That would be the end of that. Well, it would be the end of the street protests. It wouldn't be the end of the spirit of the movement. That didn't happen. The protest continued. And then there was the outbreak of, of, I was going to say SARS, which was of course the previous big pandemic that affected Hong Kong and China. There was the outbreak of the COVID virus, compounded with the social unrest. And incidentally, although it I don't think was as crystal clear as it was, it is now, compounded by the increasing and really rapid clamp down within mainland China itself on any form of political opposition. Arrests not only of people who are known to be part of the protest movement, but of members of the elite who had somehow crossed the red line that separates ordinary people from President Xi Jinping. <clears throat> so you have this convergence of three enormous forces coming together. You had the COVID crisis, you had the social protests in Hong Kong, And you had the emergence of the most powerful dictator in China since the days of Mao Zedong. So, you know, this was an enormous convergence of events and it didn't deserve a a sort of, you know, a a short brief summary to tell us where things had got to. So I tried, I, I, I didn't quite plan it this way, but this is how it came out. I tried to write a book in parts, one, to explain the background of what was happening and how it came about, secondly, to provide a chronology of what happened, because the one thing that we know about dictatorships is that they always expunge and rewrite history. So a record of history is much more important in (coughs) situations of authoritarian government than it is in situations of democratic government where people value history and allow, uh, there's nothing to stop, people writing their own version of it. And as you know, anybody who lives in America, for example, knows there's hardly one version of American history on the contrary, I Couldn't tell you how many versions there are, but it's, it's, it's at least thousands, if not millions. So, you know, there was this compulsion to record. And then thirdly, and this is always the tricky bit, is the interpretation of these events, what they mean, what they're likely to mean in the future, and where it leaves all the main players in the uprising. Those who took part in it, those who tried to suppress it, and those who who were sort of bit players, but at various moments emerged as being quite influential. And then there's this grisly business of, of trying to see a bit, but I'm always hesitant to do this, trying to see a bit what will happen in the future. You know, what does this mean? What will happen tomorrow? What will happen in the next 10 years? And I decided that the only thing that I know, knew about the future is that dictatorships are unstable forms of government. There has never been a dictatorship in modern history that has had the sort of longevity that they themselves imagined they would have. You know, the 1,000-year Reich of the Nazis quite clearly didn't last a 1,000 years. The eternal governments of the Soviet Union lasted not much more than half a century, etc., etc. And, of course, the Chinese Communist Party believes that it's reinvented the wheel as far as dictatorships are concerned. And it, too, believes it will live forever, that it has devised a superior form of government, Combining the harshest of autocracies, autocracies rather, <clears throat> with dynamic economy so that people can be fed, given electricity and all the things that didn't exist in China before the Communist Revolution, and be told to shut up about representative government, human rights, and all those silly little things that are supposed to be on the background. So, you know. The only prediction I could make was that the system is never as strong as it seems to be
0: and it won't last. Right, and, uh, and we'll come back to that um, uh, because I think that uh, with the national security law, Um, it is pretty clear what is happening uh, in Hong Kong in terms of the intent uh, of Beijing and tolerance uh, for people expressing their views when they're uh, critical of the government. But I want to go back a little bit, and you mentioned that, Um, you wanted in this book to write a little bit about the background to this crisis. Uh, This was not the first one. There was massive demonstration in 2003 over Article uh, 23. Uh, There were the 2012 patriotic education protests, of course, Occupy, uh, Central, and uh, the so-called Umbrella Revolution in 2014. Uh, the fishbowl revolution and other incidents in, in 2016. Um, So uh, there is, in your book, you, you, you write that um, the political system um, is not fit for purpose. Um, And it, not only it is a political system that um, doesn't truly represents uh, various social interests, but it's also unable, in your view, to channel uh, major social problems, such as the fact that the economy of Hong Kong um, ultimately uh, is in the hands of of very few people. Do, Do you want to tell us a little bit about the background of Hong Kong institutions and political system before we sort of look at the, the crescendo that leads to the, to the increased mobilization and increasingly uh, confrontational and even violent uh, um, uh, ways of mobilizing and, and, uh, and registering opposition to the, to the government?
1: Yes, I mean, the, as you say, I mean, first of all, people forget how peculiar Hong Kong's political system is. It's, it, it's, it's the, if you like, it's the bastard child of a colonial system. The point about most colonial systems is that they either end bloodily with a revolution and are rebuilt, not necessarily into a, 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 a wonderful touchy feely democracy, but they, they can often be replaced by ghastly dictatorships or what happens is is that there is some sort of orderly transfer of power from a colonial system into a self-ruling form of government. And in the 21st century, you would have thought it would be inconceivable that a sophisticated, freewheeling, open society like Hong Kong would go from colonialism under a foreign power i.e. the British into a form of mutant colonialism under a not at all benevolent communist dictatorship. So you have a society where with immensely well-educated people with open access to information from all around the world being thrown into a effectively an authoritarian system, which is based on lack of social institutions, lack of, well, not lack of, I mean, they're they're expanded. Civil society doesn't freely operate in China because the only form of civil society which is permitted is, is that which is sanctioned by the party. But in Hong Kong, civil society is very active, was very active. But the point is, the Chinese looked at the... Chinese, by which I mean the the Communist Party, looked at the system that had prevailed in Hong Kong, and incidentally, one should never forget, was not reformed sufficiently by the British. They had one hundred and fifty years to do something about it, and simply did not. And they looked at it and they said, "Oh my goodness, we can live with this system, isn't it great? The people can't elect the government, but they have elections, and they elect." Legislators who have virtually no power. How wonderful can that be? It has a head of state, not a head of state, a head of government appointed as it was in London, now appointed in Beijing. So you have ultimate control over that person. And it has a willing um, band of enthusiastic cheerleaders among the elite who, to preserve their own privileges and position, will basically play along with whatever who's in charge wants them to play along with. So some of the leading lights of the new order, the new wonderful order in Hong Kong, are precisely the leading lights of the old colonial order. They have shamelessly changed their shirts overnight and decided that they are the most loyal of loyal Chinese patriots. How do I know that? Because they keep saying so. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a particularly outrageous example of this, so the, the person who was appointed to be head of the legislature in the immediate post-colonial era is a woman called Rita Fan, who a, a, <laughs> uh, who is an MBE, who, she's a member of the British Empire. It's an honor that you get for loyal service to the British crown. Well, she's now a, a holder of various um, communist granted honors and barely blinks when asked, as I had attempted to in days when people still speak to me about these things, how she justified this, she just gave me a pity look and say, you don't understand reality. So in that sense, you have this strange thing of an elite, which is entirely self-serving, of a burgeoning um, uh, society, which has tasted which consent that intense smell of freedom and liberty, but is not allowed to exercise it. And he's given various means of so-called exercising it by elections, by giving the right to freedom of assembly, by by being given the right to freedom of expression, all of which happened under the British, but were never allowed to govern themselves. Well, anybody who's been a student of British colonialism will know that even at its worst, most British colonies have ended up, and I can't actually think of um, exceptions to this rule off the top of my head, but there probably is one, but most of them at least have ended up with, as a minimum, people governing themselves, not necessarily by democratic means, it may well be through a dictatorship, but governing themselves in the post-colonial era Hong Kong was never given that option. And in fact, the British went to great lengths to pretend that they consulted the people of Hong Kong over their fate, which was sealed in um, 1984 with an agreement between the governments in London and Beijing without an iota of consultation with the people of Hong Kong. So, you know, it's, it's a very unusual set of affairs And it means that the government becomes and became predictably not fit for purpose. What's happened in the last few years is that all pretense of self-government has been abandoned and the people who now hold the various positions in Hong Kong, the head of government, the chief executive, and all the rest of them are merely ciphers. They do what they're told, they get their orders direct, and indirect, because there's a complex system of, of receiving these orders from Beijing, and they carry out their orders without a blink.
0: And one of the key uh, promise was that the Hong Kong people would be allowed to uh, elect at universal suffrage the chief executive, the chief of the government. And uh, around two thousand. If I remember correctly, um, uh, Beijing must have asked the uh, chief executive at the time if, if they could be introduced. And, um, and Donald Jiang uh, uh, perhaps confidently told Beijing that now was probably not the right time, but you know, in 10 years' time or down the line that that would be possible and the election would return a candidate acceptable to Beijing. And I I remember distinctly reading in the newspaper, the day of the NPC decision that stated that there would be election to the universal suffrage for the chief executive in 2017, and and almost spilling my coffee and falling off off my chair uh, because I thought, what makes Beijing confident that um, it would uh, work? And indeed, Uh, As we get close to 2017, Beijing realizes it has a problem and then comes up with uh, with a solution uh, that is that uh, people will be able to vote only uh, for candidates that have been vetted and accepted by Beijing. And all this plunges Hong Kong into that confrontation uh, of Occupy Central and the the Umbrella um, uh, Revolution. Uh, so-called revolution. Um, But your book really starts in 2019 um, over the protests um, that are ignited by uh, a proposed law, a treaty for an extradition uh, uh, that would make possible extradition of certain cases to the mainland to be tried. Uh, What was so special at that time and with this project that really showed, um, turned out to be a very different kind of mobilization.
1: I I, I mean, that's an easy and a hard question to answer. I know that's not very helpful, but the easy part is that um, I think if there is one thing that Hong Kong people treasure above anything else, it's the prevalence of rule of law. If you introduce a piece of legislation, which says that people living under the rule of law, under impartial judiciary in Hong Kong, can be handed over to the system of judicial uh, rulings in the mainland, where 99.9% of the people who appear in the court of law are found guilty because the decision, as soon as you're you're arrested, you're already considered to be a guilty person, where there are no um, such things as trial by jury, where there is no such thing as an independent judiciary, where it is in fact stated quite openly that that, um, judges in mainland China are supposed to serve the party and serve the country, where the whole concept of living your life, you don't have to worry about anything else, living your life under a system of rules which are transparent and accountable, is undermined by the threat of crossing some red line put there by some uh, Chinese bureaucrats means that you could be sent across the border for trial and long incarceration, because remember, prison sentences in China are by international standards very long indeed, I need hardly tell you that, but lots of people don't quite realize how harsh those prison sentences are. This was this was like touching on a very raw nerve of Hong Kong people's awareness. And, You know, I was covering the protests at the early stages, and I thought what would happen would be that some sort of funny little compromise would be made. There would be some kind of backtracking. There would be some kind of um, deferment of this draconian move. And that people would come off the streets, they'd be complaining and there'd be lots of fuss, but that would be the end of it. What I didn't think was possible was the sheer staggering level of incompetence of the people running the Hong Kong government under Carrie Lam. And I do believe it is personally her responsibility, because at this stage, I don't think she was directly acting under orders of deciding that to curry favor (coughs) with the leadership in Beijing she would defy public sentiment and say I don't care if a million people have come out on the streets I am right it's them who doesn't understand that we are doing something right here and she managed to provoke almost single-handedly people who were initially annoyed but not outraged by what was going on into a state of fury and in their unprecedented numbers they came out onto the streets and as you indicated a few moments ago a lot of those protests turned quite violent indeed although it does have to be stated and i was at a very large number of these protests the number of people engaged in the violent elements of the protests was far outnumbered by people who are there, who did not want to take part in the violence, who in fact didn't take part in the violence, who simply wanted to demonstrate in an orderly fashion. But anyway, obviously, and this is not unique to Hong Kong, it's the more extreme elements of any protest that get attention, not the more passive elements. <clears throat> but now we come to the difficult part of your question, which is, well, how did it move from being a fairly well-defined protest against the extradition law into a general demand for democracy, into a general uprising. I use that word. I know it's not commonly used for what happened, but I describe it as an uprising because I think it's an accurate description of what happened. And uh, my explanation is that the fires were stoked, some of it inadvertently by idiots in the Hong Kong government, but some of it intentionally. I think that that we reached a point towards the end of 2019 where the Communist Party leadership decided we're going to take on the people of Hong Kong. We're going to teach them a lesson. We're going to make it very clear who's in charge and anybody who defies us. Is going to suffer the consequences, and we're going to take off the kid gloves. We're not going to pretend that there will ever be free and open elections. We're not going to pretend that we're going to tolerate freedom of speech. We're not going to pretend that the extraordinary high level of civil liberties, which were maintained in Hong Kong, despite being part of China, would any longer be countenanced. And anyway, we never really liked these promises that we made to the world of having one country, two systems. Those promises were made when China was a lot weaker and was not in a position to be so assertive in world affairs. The time had come in their minds to simply say, that's it. And then they took the gamble, which we still don't know whether it was a good or a bad gamble on their part, but the rest of the world just wouldn't give a damn. The rest of the world would say, you say this is your internal affairs. We don't really like it. Hey, at the end of the day, is America going to send three divisions into Hong Kong to protect the people of Hong Kong? No, that's not going to happen. Is a country like Australia, and we can come back to why Australia is such an interesting case, going to sacrifice its enormous economic ties which are sustaining the Australian economy for the sake of seven million pesky people in Hong Kong. All of this seemed inherently unlikely from the perspective of Beijing. I would say that the jury is still out on that gamble because (coughs) the level of, um, I was gonna say resistance, but I don't think that's the right word. The level of bad feeling towards the Chinese Communist Party and the rulers in Beijing has risen exponentially. Not just, and this is why I find it very interesting, not just among governments, but if you believe, for example, the polling done by Pew, who do these international reputational polls all the time, the level at which the Chinese Communist Party is trusted and admired throughout the world has sunk to extraordinary new lows among ordinary people. And I was quite amazed when I, we haven't talked about this yet, but when I found that I had to leave Hong Kong and I came to Britain, people, because you keep getting in situations where you have to explain why you don't have various pieces of documentation or or what have you, um, that you would have if you you lived all your life in Britain. And I'd say, well, actually, I've just left Hong Kong. And they go, oh, isn't it terrible what's going on there? And I thought, Goodness me, they may not, people may not have known in detail what was happening in Hong Kong, but there was an enormous general awareness of the oppressive nature of the regime that is causing people to leave Hong Kong in droves. So you have popular sentiment turning against China. You have even in the intensely divided um, political atmosphere in the United States, one subject on which all parties seem to agree, and that's a pretty extraordinary thing, is on the subject of China. Here in Britain, which is also deeply politically divided, that's not exactly hot news. There is almost wall-to-wall consensus that that um, Britain has gone too far in uh, being soft on China that it's not a country to be trusted, wouldn't allow China to get any further involvement in the telecommunication system here, et cetera, et cetera. So it's true, there are no British tanks on the lawn of um, Dongnanhai, the the center of um, power in Beijing. There are no British aircraft overflying Hong Kong to somehow protect the people of Hong Kong but there's a hell of a lot of other things going on which i think the communist party in its cynicism and it was cynicism because they took the view <clears> that we're too rich and we're too powerful now for anybody to 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 mess with us any longer which they hadn't taken account of
0: so you uh, y- in 2019 you have a uh, y- you have a, n- a number of um different um chain of events that, that combine into a, a perfect storm, right? You have a new leader in China, Xi Jinping, um, who is much more hardline and seems to have incorporated into his uh, view of, of governance, the ideology developed by a number of um, Chinese intellectuals about um, uh, state power, uh, many ideas actually drawn from um, uh, uh, Carl Schmitt, uh, the, uh, the German um, um, uh, legal scholar whose ideas were um, very much in currency um, uh, in in Germany um, in the beginning of the of the National Socialist period, uh, you have Beijing was unhappy because Hong Kong has not has never managed to adopt Article Twenty Three legislation on on subversion and and aspects of national security. Um, on the other hand, you have a, a very poor relationship between China and the rest of the world, or at least the U.S. because uh, Trump is in power and there's a level of of um, confrontation between China and the. US that uh, really is new um, and it was m- maybe not a particularly well thought strategy by Trump who sort of oscillated um, but certainly a taboo about China alienating uh, the US has been has been broken then you have a The Hong Kong government's um, uh, personalities, and you you spend a lot of time uh, interviewing some of these people, including the chief executive Carrie Lam. Will go back to this. Who have a particular mindset, which is not. Uh, really to be responsive to uh, uh, public demands. You have changes in the police, uh, clearly with the arrival of of Chris Tang in November 2019 as the new police commissioner, who seems to be much more um, willing to to take a political stance uh, and to um really uh, go beyond the role of policing demonstration to the role of casting the demonstrators as rioters and and um and 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 guilty parties um and then you have all sorts of dynamics within the um uh, protest movements so you mentioned that the rule of law the protection of rule of law was a was a central element but in your book you also talk quite a bit about what you call the emergence of a hong kong identity and by this i assume you mean a civic identity because hong kong had a had an identity uh, quite early on and of course you know canto pop and movies and um and fashion and uh, and all this was was very much part of the hong kong identity in the you know, from the the, the 60s onward. But something happens um, around that time that really changes the way that Hong Kong, the Hong Kong public see itself.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the really most fascinating aspects of what was happening. And I'm very glad you brought it up because first of all, just in terms of um, demographics, we, we, we had entered an era, or, or rather we were probably two decades into the first era in which the majority of people in Hong Kong were born in Hong Kong. Remember, Hong Kong is a largely immigrant society, and even if um, the, each person in society isn't an immigrant themselves, their sons and daughters almost inevitably are immigrants. And Hong Kong was, had that transient feeling, you know, it it existed because people had fled across the border from the ravages of the awful things that were happening on the Chinese mainland, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, intense poverty, political chaos, life-threatening events that people very rightly in my mind, decided they wanted to get away from. And they came to Hong Kong, not because they wanted to live in a country governed by Britain. In fact, I think most people who came were just vaguely aware of what it meant to live in Hong Kong. They just wanted to get away, which is, you know, what immigrants often want to do. Get away, you know, these people are pouring out of Afghanistan, you don't have to say, I wonder why they want to leave Afghanistan at the moment, is pretty clear. So they landed in Hong Kong and most of them literally arrived with the clothes on their back. So they, the the, the, the parents of the generation who are at the forefront of the protesters today work like mad to get a decent life for themselves, provide an education for their children, put food on the table. I don't think they had the time or inclination to spend Effort, you know, thinking about how do I create a better society? It was how can I keep my family going? In quite a short space of time, compared with other immigrant societies, those people became <coughs> assimilated. They became assimilated because, of course, they had an almost um, universal cultural background of being Cantonese from southern China speaking the same language. And I would argue that Chinese languages, which are called dialects are in fact distinctive languages. But anyway, there's people who are better informed than me who would dispute that. But the fact of the matter is they spoke the same language on the whole. There were significant populations from other parts of China, but it was overwhelming. and remains overwhelmingly a Cantonese society. they they had that sort of cultural identification, but it wasn't crystallised into a wider identification with a place. And what has happened in the last few decades is that that commonality of cultural experience has been transformed into a sense of identity. If you were on the um, protests, if you were at the protests, one of the things you would always hear is, "I'm a Hong Kong person." I'm a Hong Konger, which, you know, you would say, well, why is that particularly significant? It's significant because people didn't say it before. It wasn't deemed something. People, and there's lots of polling evidence of this, would identify themselves as Hong Kong Chinese, or some people actually identify themselves as Hong Kong British, but on the whole, a single identity of being Hong Konger this is the place where I live, this is the place where I'm committed to, this is the place where I want to take a part in shaping its future, is something relatively new in Hong Kong history. And we have seen the rise of a generation who do not identify like their parents do with their uh, ancestral homes. You know, this is a common thing in China, people talk about their ancestral homes and they say, you say, where are you from? They, they mention their ancestral homes rather than where they happen to be at any given time. Common in Hong Kong, actually common throughout China. These people will only mention Hong Kong. It's true, they've been to their ancestral homes with their parents, often dragged along. We don't want to go to those places, but they were dragged along. <coughs> and they came away thinking, thank goodness I don't live there, I live in Hong Kong. And there are many wonderful things about Hong Kong to to identify with, but it's the Hong Kong spirit that has developed in this way. And it's made people aware of their distinctiveness from the rest of China and the unique situation they find themselves in. And for some people, it's a matter of great pride, for other people, it's a matter of some concern, but all of them are aware of the distinctiveness and this fed into the protests particularly when it became so overwhelmingly evident that the Chinese Communist Party wasn't just hostile to the democracy movement in Hong Kong it was hostile to Hong Kongers. Now there's a traditional and long-standing division within China itself between various regions and there is no greater hatred than that between the North and the South. Northerners distinctly distrusting people from the South, seeing the South of China as being an inherently rebellious place, which incidentally is true in, in terms of Chinese history. And you know, Hong Kong is looking down on their mainland counterparts thinking of them as country bumpkins, uncouth, uneducated, etc., cetera, et cetera, So <clears throat> on a personal and cultural level, there's this division. And it feeds into the politics. And yet- the,
0: And you get- No, I was going to say, and yet, the, um, uh, you, we see the emergence of a so-called localists, uh, uh, political movements, uh, and even a political party that gets quickly banned, but uh, a national independence, uh, Hong Kong uh, um, party, uh, but never really gains uh, much traction um uh politically compared to the others um which really brings to me the the issue of this this puzzle um which is the the acceptance by it seems a majority of the protesters and certainly um of, of the population and certainly the protesters um for for forms of violent uh protests and this raises a question, really, of um, whether something, what changed there? Hong Kong was really a place where you would not see that violence. The demonstrators were among the most peaceful and well-behaved uh, I've seen around the world. Um, but uh, they are, you know, f- first of all, the question is, you know, what allowed this and second of all, there is also a question about whether there has been some intransigence by the protesters that led to this um, uh, legal blitzkrieg, that the introduction of the national security law, and we'll come back to this as as, uh, as introduced, um, there was always opposition, and it was impossible to pass Article 23, which deeply um, uh, displeased and worried um, uh, Beijing. Um, There was a rejection of the traditional uh, pan-democrats, elected politicians, uh, as being uh, too soft and and not able to really protect Hong Kong's freedom or obtain democracy for for Hong Kong. Um, uh, Carrie Lam and the government did uh, suspend and eventually withdrew the extradition law and, uh, and the protests could have ended on, on the high note on that victory or and maybe step back and regroup, but that's not what happened. And I, I'm really curious about this, um, both the choice of the Hong Kong protesters not to separate or distinguish themselves from the the, the violent protesters, um, and and whether you think that the movement, um, which was uh, self-defined as a leaderless movement, uh, did indeed uh, precipitated the this um, uh, outcome um, of having the national security law imposed by Beijing.
1: Well, I think the answer to that is that every protest movement that I've ever known anywhere in the world, um, has started out with relatively narrowly defined aims and morphed into being something other. Now, in Hong Kong, the protest movement, as you say, by and large, throughout the years, has been peaceful, with the significant and very telling exception of the pro-communist protest movements in the 1960s which were
0: extremely
1: violent and caused deaths on the streets of Hong Kong, which incidentally have not been a big feature of, of these protests. But anyway, they, that is the only previous um, exception to, to, to the rule of peaceful demonstration that, that I know of. And I think what happened was a combination of two things frustration that even when two million people were on the streets two million people something over 20 percent of the population on the streets the first thing that the chief executive said was i'm going to ignore you so you get all these young people and now i speak as an older person who just thought i'm fed up with this peaceful demonstrations get us nowhere We've got to really force them, we've got to show them that we mean business by starting to tear, literally tear down the barricades, smash some windows and get their attention that way. In fact, there was a very famous slogan of the protest movement saying, you ignored, you know, you, I'm paraphrasing it, but basically said, you know, you ignored us when we were peaceful. Now you listen to us. Now that the people are out in the streets throwing rocks and all the rest of it. Of course, if you look at this in a nice academic objective way, you can say this is sheer madness. Because particularly in Hong Kong, but it tends to be true elsewhere in the world, the protesters are, ordered or are customarily much more ill-equipped for, for violence than the established order You know, they don't have guns in Hong Kong. Gun ownership is very, very uncommon. They don't have um, even the right sort of protective clothing, all the things that the police have as a matter of routine. So you engage in violence, you're instantly on an unequal footing. Forces of government have all that power to deal with violence. The, The kids on the streets, and it was very young people involved in it, have rocks, maybe Molotov cocktails, not much more than that, <clears throat> to throw at the assembled police lines. So, first of all, it, was, it wasn't a sensible thing to do, but you know, when you have very frustrated and very angry people, it's very hard to tell them what a sensible thing to do was. Then you say, well, why didn't the older generation of leaders of the democracy movement who had never contemplated? taking part in violent protests. Why didn't they say to the uh, younger demonstrators, this is a terrible thing to do? Well, incidentally, they did, to some extent. But there were two things going on. One was they were frightened of losing their position as leaders of the democracy movement, if, so to speak, the ground troops had moved off in a different direction. Secondly, there was a great value placed on unity in opposition, and which meant that one sector of the opposition wouldn't criticise another sector for doing things they didn't approve of. Then we come to the third element in all of this. And I did look at it in some detail in the book, whether there were agents provocateurs consciously acting at the behest of the forces of government to turn it in a violent direction. The crucial moment in all of this was a protest in July of 2019 outside the Legislative Council where there was an enormous demonstration, enormous, at least hundreds of thousands of people marching peacefully from one of Hong Kong's traditional assembly points called Victoria Park towards the legislature. And a minority, and at that time, I mean, I saw them. I was there. I know exactly what happened. And a minority of people broke away from that demonstration and tried to batter down the door of the Legislative Assembly and rampage throughout the building and do all the things that happened. So I was standing outside and I thought, where are the police? Everywhere you go in Hong Kong, the police force incident is enormous in 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 comparison to the size of the population where, where are the police why aren't they stopping these people from entering the legislative council building they were all standing in a perimeter they were watching from afar these people with batons trying to break into the building and the point about you know why didn't um oh, if you like uh, members of, of of the democratic opposition try and stop them uh, actually they did. I saw them. Members of, of the legislature who were elected on the Democratic ticket were standing outside trying to persuade them not to do this. They were ignored. That's also a fact. <coughs> they were brushed aside. Anyway, but they did make the attempt. Then at about four o'clock in the afternoon, to my utter amazement, all the police were withdrawn. I thought, well, this is very odd. Why when people are trying to batter down the doors of the Legislative Assembly? And incidentally, when I asked protesters, do you know who that person is? Because they all kind of knew each other. There were many people in that crowd who the protesters who I was aware of, who I'd interviewed, who I interacted with in the past, they'd go, I don't know, we we can't know everybody. But there was a significant number of people who were unknown to the um, general protest movement who are playing a leading role in this. They finally managed, after hours, and I mean hours, this isn't a hyperbole, after hours to batter down the doors and poured into the building. And you would have thought, well, where are the police now? This is the Legislative Assembly of Hong Kong. The police had completely withdrawn. They later said that it was darkness and the police couldn't operate in the dark. That's a was quite a revelation to me. And they then used all these multiple of excuses why they couldn't do anything. So indeed, <coughs> there was a rampage, furniture was destroyed, walls were daubed with slogans, all the sorts of things you would accept. But from that day on, all protest was, was described by the authorities as violent rioting. From that day on, they managed to Transform the way that the protests were portrayed and they could paint everybody taking part in the protest as being writers intent on subverting the state intent on overthrowing the government by violent means that one day transformed the narrative of the protests and indeed their character and as far as many of the young people were concerned who were involved in the process. They rather admired the people who managed to bang down the doors of the Legislative Assembly and take control of the building and sit in the chamber and blah, blah, blah. And incidentally, and decide on their own accord to withdraw. I mean, this is another remarkable thing which wasn't much commented on. They were never evicted from the building by the police. They took a vote and decided to leave. (coughs) But, If you were sitting in the headquarters of the Chinese Communist Party, you would say,
0: that's not a bad
1: thing that we can now describe all the protests as being violent and irresponsible.
0: And of course, from the protesters' point of view, this is happening in a context where um, trust in the police has completely collapsed by then. Uh, The government has failed to take any remedial um uh, actions or hold accountable uh, a number of episodes of violence directed at the protesters whether it was by the police or um, by uh, uh, triads um and and that that led to a situation where the Hong Kong police which was uh, you know one of the most trusted police force in it in Asia became um, uh, really a, a representative of of arbitrariness and unaccountability and that probably fed into the um, uh, um, the perception of the of the protesters because the antagonism on the streets between the police and protesters really escalated um, over over months, and 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 became um, and it was clear that that the government was not Willing to intervene uh, and to um, uh, offer a political avenue to discuss the the demands of the of the protesters. Um, I want now to turn to. Um, uh, a topic uh, that could take another uh, full interview. Uh, your book ends with the uh, imposition of the national security law. Um, and I, th- in June um, uh, 2020, I think the, the the last sentence of your book uh, was that uh, the price Hong Kongers are posed to pay to defy the dictatorship is clearly going to be very high. Um, and it's proving to be... Ex- Extraordinarily high, uh, you yourself and, and myself, but I can't have left Hong Kong uh, without much uh, uh, choice. Um, uh, but uh, this is a minor sideshow to what is happening to Hong Kong society. Uh, if you were to add a chapter to your book about what has happened since the imposition of uh, the national security law, uh, what would you be uh, writing in it?
1: I think I would focus on the destruction of civil society. I mean, as you say, there's people who've paid a, a much higher price than, than I've paid or you've paid, for example. You know, there's the 10,000 people who've been arrested for political related offences. There's almost 200 people who've directly been arrested under the National Security Law which means that they could remain in jail for the rest of their lives. These are enormous prices to be paid. But if you look at civil society, you see like a a stack of cards, in trade unions closing down, student unions closing down, um, organizations which are not in the front lines of politics. I mean, let's just talk about with well, this. Is a this is a show about books. Let's just talk about the Hong Kong Literary Festival. I was disinvited um from, from participating in it with a sort of mealy-mouth thing from the director of the festival who said, Oh, this year we've decided that that it would be better not to talk about the situation in Hong Kong. Therefore, it's not just you who's been disinvited, but everybody who's written a book on, on this subject. So, you know, even where the institutions of civil society remain, they're being subverted and undermined. Radio Television Hong Kong, which was the public broadcaster you mentioned that I did both the radio and TV program for, of course, still exists, but it's been shorn of its content. There are no current affairs programs on. Um, television anymore, produced by RTHK, the programme I was presenting, of course, doesn't exist anymore. There's been an exodus from the station of people either purged, i.e. kicked out, or people demoted, or people silenced. So the institutions still stand, but they have been defested. I mean, they're not um performing the function they're supposed to perform anymore so you have the collapse of civil society you have the terror that is running through society now people in schools in universities in the civil service even even among public sector doctors i mean it's in, it, there is no corner to which the what is being called the, the white terror, does not reach. This is, I know, to people who are familiar with authoritarian systems, this is not anything new. Nobody who's lived in a dictatorship is under the smallest illusion that the idea of autonomous institutions beyond the control of the state will be tolerated. But if most dictatorships around the world today, this significant difference is they tend to be in societies that have never tasted the sweet taste of liberty. They are societies that have been ruled under various forms of autocracy for a very long period of time. There aren't societies that you can point to that have actually experienced liberty and experienced the functioning of civil society in ways that people understand it to function, this have suddenly had it torn away. And it was done in an incredibly short period of time. The, the, the rollout of this repression was staggeringly fast. I mean, up to 2020, it, I just speak personally, it never occurred to me, I assumed I'd lived my entire life in Hong Kong, it never occurred to me that things would get so bad that I would have to leave. Or that the essence of Hong Kong would be ripped out of its being, you know, that that freedom of assembly would simply cease to exist, which it does. Freedom of expression is extremely challenged. That the threat of the policeman knocking (coughs) at your door in the early hours of the morning, which is their chosen time for knocking on your door, nowadays in Hong Kong would be real and recurring. So, you know, I think if I were to write another chapter, it would be very dark indeed. But I would add two qualifications. One is remarkably, however dark the situation is in Hong Kong, it isn't identical to that which prevails on the Chinese mainland. The distance of travel in regression has been fast and terrifying but we haven't quite reached that stage. And secondly, I still continue to believe that if you look at history, there is no evidence to the contrary of the weakness and the inherent instability of dictatorships. And this is why in China, for example, the government spends more money on policing its own people than it does on external defense. It it regards the threat to the ruling party as much greater from within than from without, despite all the rhetoric.
0: Right, and this is uh, something that you end your book with, which is a a fairly um, skeptical uh, take on uh, the fact that uh, this, um, the development is Hong Kong, um, and uh, the effective end of the one country, to system arrangement, and the much the quasi direct rule from Beijing uh, reflect the strength of the regime um, rather than uh, than its weakness. But you seem to imply in your book that you think that it's actually a sign of weakness not to be able to tolerate this little liberal enclave uh, within the the People's Republic of China.
1: I do. And I think it was a sign of um, strength when Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of China, came up with this idea of one country, two systems, which incidentally wasn't developed for Hong Kong. It was developed as a means of reuniting Taiwan with the, with the motherland as it was seen in Beijing. It was, we'll sweet talk the people of Taiwan into accepting their destiny as being part of a unified China. And we'll use Hong Kong as an example to see how it could be done. Well, that is dead now. The only talk of reunification between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland is discussed in terms of whether there will or won't be a military invasion. There's no discussion at all of the peaceful reunification, of providing inducements to the people of Taiwan to reunify with the mainland. China's, by China, I mean Beijing's biggest supporters in Taiwan, no longer, no longer even pretend that they also believe in the reunification with the mainland. That's an enormous weakness because it's tremendously important for China to reunify the country. This is something that Xi Jinping has mentioned on a number of occasions. So, into this context, you have to say <clears throat> how self confident is a nation of us? They constantly remind us 1.4 billion people, which cannot tolerate a degree of liberty among 7 million or so of its citizens. And of course, citizens of Hong Kong are citizens of China. How strong is a nation that feels threatened by the existence of a newspaper called the Apple Daily and seeks by numerous means to expunge it from the face of the earth? When after all, it controls television stations and newspapers of its own, has a, has a, a cyber wall erected around the internet to prevent infiltration of free ideas. How strong is a nation that feels threatened by a single newspaper to the extent that it's obviously determined to put its founder, Jimmy Lyon, in jail for the rest of his life, to close down the newspaper, to have policemen marching through its promises, premises, rather, to ensure that all its materials are seized and the paper can no longer function. What sort of nation has to do this? Even at its weakest moments, and goodness me, democracies go through weak moments with alarming um, regularity. And since I've returned to Britain, I've dismissed rather more than I had when I was living in Hong Kong. But underlying that, no, Serious politician in this country or in any other democracy, which I'm aware of, thinks that there is an existential threat to the nation if they fail to be in power the following week. They understand that at the end of the day, you serve at the will of the people. And if they don't like you on Tuesday, they may well like you on Wednesday. The Communist Party just believes that if they show a moment of weakness, they will never recover the strength sufficient to maintain their position as the rulers of the country that doesn't strike me as self-confident strong people they bullies they are loutish in their behavior they do quite appalling things and we haven't even discussed many of those Um, but at the end of the day
0: they're terrified and uh discussion could go on uh, for a long time, but we have to end uh, somewhere, Steve. Um, I want to mention that your book has um, a, a very entertaining uh, personae dramatis um, in the form of vignettes mm-hmm. of uh, different players uh, in the uh, protests. Um, you have a, a chronology Um, And I think that if journalism is the first draft of history, uh, this book uh, definitely is uh, a very um, uh, useful and um, must read second uh, draft of history. Uh, So uh, thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you. It's entirely my pleasure.
0: This was an interview on the Human Rights Channel of the New Books Network, hosted by me, Nicholas Becklin. Today's author was Steve Vines, author of Defying the Dragon, Hong Kong and the World's Largest Dictatorship. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.